Paul. And as we continue in our corporate worship, I uh, encourage you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we do extend a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to all of our visitors and uh, newcomers with us. We uh, do, just to remind you, uh, you're more than welcome and encouraged to stick around with us after service for our time of fellowship, our potluck today, and uh, look forward to the opportunity of speaking with you more and getting to know you. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, as we begin this section with the woman at the well and Jesus' interaction with her, today we will consider part 1, and so let us read together verses 1 through 10. John 4, 1 through 10. This is the Word of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself did not baptize but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by or on the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us unite our hearts in prayer and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You that You have blessed us as a people to possess the sacred oracles of God. That You have not left us in darkness. You have not left us to wander on our own. But rather, You have brought to us the great light of truth as it is supremely manifest in Your Son who is truth incarnate. Father, to whom shall we go? For Your Son alone has the words of eternal life. We thank You, Father, that You have taught our hearts to fear. That You have taught our hearts to be humble and to submit to Your Word and to submit to Your Son. Father, we thank You for the grace of giving us Your Spirit when yet we were dead. And He made us alive and brought us from spiritual darkness and death to spiritual life. And brought us to a saving knowledge of the light of Christ. Father, we thank You for this section that we are entering in upon this morning. 
Lord, we've just sung of how Jesus sought us when we were strangers. And what a picture of that truth this story is. Of Jesus in grace and love making it His purpose to be gracious to this Samaritan woman in this village. Father, we pray that You would instruct our minds and our hearts this morning. We pray that we would be more impassioned for Your glory in the Gospel. Father, that our hearts would desire that more nations come to have the light of Christ and Your Word. That Your church would cover more and more every corner of the earth. Father, we pray that You would instruct us in the many things that our Lord Jesus exemplifies for us here. Father, help us to receive the Word with humility. Help us not to be those who simply look at the Word as one looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away unchanged and forgetting what he looks like, but we pray that we would not just be hearers, but doers of Your Word. Father, we pray for any who are here who are outside of Christ. Be merciful to them. Awaken them from the sleep of sin. We pray that You would show them their blindness and their desperate need for the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, be merciful. Send Your Spirit powerfully amongst us, we pray. We ask that You would draw near to us and we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let us begin this morning as I typically do in terms of how we work through uh, these passages together. Let us begin with exposition and then we will move into doctrine and application together. So it's at this point as we consider the exposition of the text that if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I especially encourage you to have it open to John chapter 4 so that you can see what God is communicating to His people. And so let's begin in verse 1 in our exposition. John writes, Therefore, when the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself did not baptize but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And so, you'll remember at the end or towards the end of John 3, Jesus has been baptizing in the countryside of Judea while John was baptizing in Anan. And you remember a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews And John's disciples walk away from that frustrated because they found out that Jesus' popularity is growing and increasing while John's is decreasing. And now, the Lord Himself knows this. Whether by a, a human messenger communicating it to Him or by the Father revealing it to Him, Jesus now knows that the Pharisees know about His baptizing and His increasing popularity. And what that means for Jesus is danger. We're told in verse 35 that Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well happens four months before harvest. And that's actually a significant detail because what that means is that Jesus has been baptizing for several months now and it's highly likely that by this time John has already been put into prison. And Jesus, knowing the hatred the Pharisees had for John, 
And knowing that their sights would now be focused upon Christ, Jesus departs from imminent danger in Judea and goes to a place of safety in the north in Galilee. Now, just a couple things, practical instructions to note from that. First of all, Jesus shows us here that it is not wrong to flee danger when we are able to. Okay? Matthew Henry says, we are not called to suffer while we may avoid it without sin. And he says, therefore, though we may not, for our own preservation, change our religion, yet we may change our place. Right? Jesus taught His disciples, when you are persecuted in one city, flee to the next. But there's a second thing that we should take note of here in Jesus departing an area of danger. We see here that Jesus Himself used the common means of preserving His own life. He didn't escape danger by a miracle. And it's incredible, even though throughout the Gospel of John, as we make our way through, we are going to see many times when John says His hour had not come. Right? I mean, by the decree of God, Christ's life could only come to an end in the way that the Father had appointed when Christ is lifted up upon a cross for the sins of His people. And yet, even though by God's sovereign decree His hour had not come, that doesn't cause Jesus to test God. He wasn't a fatalist, but rather He uses the means God has given and appointed for us for the preservation of our lives And so he departs to the north, to Galilee. But notice verse 4. He needed to go through Samaria. Now, Israel in this time, you might be familiar, Israel in this time uh, was divided into three regions. You had Judea in the south, and you had Galilee up north, and in between them was Samaria. Now, notice John says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. That's the word. We've seen it before. Literally, it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Now, as I'll mention in a moment, the Jews had actually developed another way to get from Judea to Galilee without passing through Samaria. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria in the sense that he had work to do in Samaria. Verse 34, Jesus says His food is to do the will of His Father and to finish His work. And there is a woman in the village of Sychar that Jesus has an appointment with. Okay, Now, a note about the Samaritans. Okay, this is very important contextually for understanding what's happening in this passage. The relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was strained, to say the very least. In fact, they despised one another. Okay, Uh, That's why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan upset His audience so much. I mean, how could a Samaritan be the good guy in the story? Um, In fact, the word, just the word Samaritan itself had become a, a, a curse word and an insult that in fact the Jews use against Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 48. The Samaritans, here, here's the reason for this separation. The Samaritans, both by blood and by religion, were considered by the Jews as swine or dogs. They were unclean by blood 
Because after the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in the Old Testament, many of the Jews then intermarried with the Gentiles, and so they became this half-breed people. Right? Not pure sons of Abraham. But not only that, religiously, they were apostates. Because the Samaritans set up for themselves their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria in competition with the temple at Jerusalem. And if that wasn't bad enough, they rejected all of the Old Testament prophets except for Moses, and therefore they rejected all the Old Testament revelation except the first five books of the Bible. And this animosity ran so deep that Jews, when traveling from the south in Judea up to Galilee in the north, they would actually go out of their way and take the long way and go around Samaria simply to avoid stepping foot in the land of Samaria. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's read verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, many, I think I could probably say most commentators agree, and in fact archaeology has confirmed this, that Sychar is another name for the Old Testament city of Shechem. Okay? Sometimes that happens with names of cities over time. They change. People call them by different things. Here's one reason that I think we should embrace that. Notice John includes the detail. It was near the plot of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Okay? What we know from Joshua 24.32, this is how it reads, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem for 100 pieces of silver. Okay? Now, there's a very, very fascinating parallel regarding Shechem and Sychar here. In Genesis 34-24, Shechem is the city in which the first Gentile proselytes are circumcised and as it were brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Now, fast forward from that 2,000 years, And here, Shechem or Sychar is the first place the Gospel is preached to those outside the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore, being wearied from His journey, sat thus... And if you have the New King James, it says by. I think the better translation is upon the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it's the sixth hour which means it's the, in the heat of the day. We learn from verse 8 that Jesus had already dismissed His disciples to go into the city and buy food. And Jesus, being truly human and therefore subject to all the limitations of human weakness, is wearied from His journey and He sits down upon this well for rest. A seemingly insignificant and mundane scene And yet, it is the scene for a divinely appointed gracious visitation upon this woman. And by the way, is it not telling telling of Jesus' gracious kindness and tenderness here? 
Here's one who usually was used to preaching to crowds who gathered around him to hear him for instruction. And yet here it is not below the Lord Jesus to give his undivided attention to a single woman. And not just any woman, a poor woman and a Samaritan woman and a sinful woman. Verse 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So, given the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, here's Jesus. He's not only in Samaria, He's not only sitting on a Samaritan well, which would have been scandalous enough, but He engages with this woman and more than that, asks for a drink from her own water pot. Now, one rabbi from this day wrote, of the Jews. He said, quote, Jews looked upon the Samaritans as having no part in the resurrection, excommunicated and cursed them by the sacred name of God, that no Israelite eat of anything that is a Samaritan's, for it is as if he should eat swine's flesh. So in the mind of the rabbis of that day and the Jews, to share a water pot with a Samaritan is equivalent to eating the flesh of swine. But Jesus asks her for a drink here, not just because He's thirsty, but because He intends to enter into spiritual discourse with her regarding her own soul. Verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to Him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink for Me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, now we've got to understand something here. Some of this can get lost in translation. This woman's reply has some attitude to it. Okay? Um, This isn't just mere surprise, like pleasant surprise from this woman. Like, oh, you know, my goodness, I'm so happy you asked me for a drink, but can you please explain to me this change of heart between the Jews and the Samaritans? That's not what's going on here. This is right off the bat uh, digging up the centuries-old bad blood between them and essentially saying to Jesus, why aren't you acting like a Jew should act? Right? In her view, they should be insulting one another, not asking favors of one another. He should be holding her in derision and vice versa. And, you know, just a note and an application from that, it's amazing how religious quarrels sometimes more than any other type of quarrel, can often be the most ungodly and dehumanizing types of quarrels. And people claiming to be religious seem to forget the the principles of charity and civility and our common humanity, and instead they dive headlong into a pool of scorn and abuse, all under the banner of being zealous for religion. I've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that. That's not how Christians behave, okay? We defend the truth and we speak the truth, but we never descend into sinful, dehumanizing behavior that mistreats a fellow image bearer, regardless of their beliefs and their views. But this woman is already on the defensive. I mean, she could tell by looking at him, this is a Jew. And she figures she'll take the first jab at Jesus. And we'll see more jabs that she takes as we move along in the chapter. For instance, when she raises the issue about Gerizim and Jerusalem and so on. 
And she thinks it's strange that this Jew is not lock in step with the prejudices of his people. And so she asks him, how is it that you being a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I mean, I think implied in that is she's basically saying, if the shoe were on the other foot here and I needed a drink from a Jew, certainly you would not give it to me. But what an example Christ is here. And we're going to talk more about this in our doctrine and application. He sets an example of defying and swimming against the prejudices of his people or his group. Okay? For the Christian, it doesn't matter what animosities exist between my so-called group and another so-called group. Whether those animosities exist along status lines or political lines or tribal lines or religious lines, the Christian following Christ sees man as man made in the image of God and in need of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, there is no one that we do not have dealings with. Right? God so loved the world. And therefore, Christians ought to love the world. Verse 10. As we come to a close of our exposition. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. What Jesus is saying to her here is, actually, woman, if you had asked Me, yes, I a Jew, but more than a Jew, the Savior of the world, if you would have asked Me, I would have given you something even better than this kind of water. Notice He just lets her provocation go. Right? She tried to provoke Him, bringing up this rivalry. Notice He just puts that aside. She, she was inflammatory, trying to get a rise out of him, potentially trying to start a quarrel. And in wisdom, Jesus speaks a kind word to turn away wrath. And he says to her, if you knew who it is who speaks to you, and if you knew the gift of God for you, you would have asked me for it and I would have given it. Right? Those words, if you knew. All this woman sees presently, she's still spiritually blind, dead in her trespasses and sins. All she sees in front of her is a Jew. A poor, weary traveler. Even an enemy. When in reality, he's the Son of God who in love came on purpose to Samaria to make her one of his sheep. And what a picture of the Gospel that, that is, Christian. How much likewise did we offend God when He was doing nothing but seeking our eternal welfare and good? And yet, God pursued us as Christ pursues this woman. Such is the measure of His love for His sheep. If, he, if she had understood who it is who was speaking to her, not only would she not have been rude to Him, she would have asked Him And she would have asked Him for what only He could give and what she so desperately needs for her soul and doesn't even know she needs. The living water of the Spirit of God. As we'll talk about more in chapter 7, the Spirit of God enlightening her eyes to the truth and giving her union with Christ and the Spirit indwelling her, welling up to eternal life. And I'll say something about this to you, unbeliever, in our 
closing application, but notice very clearly, all who would receive from Christ must first recognize who He is and that He has everything you need, but also all who ask Him will most certainly receive from Christ. Now that brings us to our doctrine and application sections this morning. Usually I try to have three sections, exposition, doctrine, and application. Um, I've tried to keep it a bit shorter this, this morning by combining doctrine and application together, and I still, unfortunately, didn't accomplish my goal of being that much shorter. But at least it's shorter than it would have been if I had had three sections, okay? So, I have four things for you this morning. Things that we are instructed in from this text doctrinally and how that applies to how we as Christians ought to conduct ourselves and live our Christian life before the face of God. Okay, So, four things this morning, and I'll give them to you as we go along. Number one, the Christian, like Christ, defies the prejudices of the world in his service to Christ. Okay, The Christian, like Christ, defies the prejudices of the world in the service of Christ. Okay, Now, I'm going to start here with what I don't mean by that. Okay, And it's unfortunate that I even have to make this qualification, but such are the days that we live in that I do. Because we, and listen to me carefully, because we live in a day that is so supercharged, with sensitivity towards anything that could potentially be perceived to have anything to do with racism, okay, and what's called social justice, many Christians who are caught up in that movement read their Bible through that lens. And they see social justice and racism issues everywhere. And you might wonder why, why this point seems out of, out of the norm. The reason for it is because as you might get, John chapter 4 has become a prime proof text for trying to argue that, see, Jesus came and His mission was to overthrow racism in the world. Okay? Now, there's a couple problems with that. Number one, the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with skin color. It was a religious animosity. The Jews saw them as apostates, which they were. doesn't mean the Jews should have treated them the way they did, but nonetheless, that was the issue. But a second problem, let's say we even granted it was about skin color, which it wasn't, but let's say it was. John 4 still does not teach that Jesus' main mission here was to overturn and mend the feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, he doesn't say a single word about that issue to them in this entire chapter. Okay, now, does Jesus' example here have principles that could apply to sinful racist attitudes? Yes, of course. I mean, I think we all would agree that the Gospel, as it takes root in God's people, breaks down every form of prejudice. But, The takeaway application from John 4 is not go into all the world and solve all the problems of racism in the world. Okay, And by the way, even if you think it does mean that, you're going to have a really tough go at that considering they're not even regenerate. Christ is the one who breaks down the wall of hostility. Okay, 
Qualification to the side. I said it. You now clearly know where I'm at. Let's consider what this does teach us, though. However, having said all that, we do, Christian, learn much from Jesus here regarding the Christian's refusal to operate along the party lines of their supposed group regarding who they can and cannot have dealings with. Okay? I mean, if you just think about Jesus, Jesus was constantly rattling the cage of the Jews regarding who it is and isn't okay to associate with. Right? Tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans. And what Jesus shows us is that the Christian brings the Gospel to any and every creature regardless of what group they're a part of and regardless of what prejudices their group might have against my group or my group against their group. And when I say group, I don't just mean ethnic group. Okay? I mean anything that unites one group of people that causes them to be prejudiced against another group, leading them to consider them to be unworthy to have dealings with. Right? That's the way the world operates. Right? I mean, your allegiance, if you're not a Christian and you're just in the world, your allegiance is to your group. And if you don't toe the party line in hating the other groups, you're seen as a traitor. I mean, I mean you have that in politics, the Republicans versus the Democrats. You have that in families where this family hates this family, and if you're born into this family, you have to hate this family. Uh, you, you have it in gangs. You have it with the rich and the poor. You have it in school with the jocks and the kids in the science club. You have it with the LGBT group versus anyone who's not in the LGBT group. And on and on and on. Here's the thing, Christian, that Jesus teaches us here. The Christian is an alien and a stranger in this world in that sense. He doesn't have any group that he belongs to that trumps his belonging to Christ's group. That is your ultimate identity, Christian, if you're in Christ, is that you are in Christ. Christians are free from being pigeonholed into worldly identities, which means we are free to mingle with anyone across any party lines for the sake of Christ. Because we see all men, no matter what groups they're a part of, as image bearers who need Christ and therefore, none of them are beneath or unworthy of our service. And in fact, that's one of the glorious ways Christians shine as salt and light in the world. We defy carnal prejudices and we gladly have dealings in befriending and sharing Christ with people that the world says we should hate. Because Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. I'll give you just an example of that. Put flesh on that. I know former gang members whose entire life prior to Christ revolved around honoring their group and hating and harming any other groups that were not their group and were against their group. And I've known some of them who got converted and they start realizing my hatred of those groups was based on nothing except the fact that they were a part of another group. And as a Christian, they begin to realize, I need to not hate them. I need to love them. Because 
They are image bearers who desperately need the grace of Christ just like I did. And they began to do the unthinkable. The unthinkable in the eyes of the world. They began to cross those lines and befriend previous rival gang members to share Christ with them. To love them the way that Christ loved them. Now, to be certain, that will invite the scorn of those who don't think you should do that. And you'll be seen as a traitor to your, your people, right? That's the point, though. You don't belong to your people. You belong to Christ and the church. But the Gospel breaks down those walls and frees us to serve Christ's, king, uh, to serve Christ's kingdom which transcends all party lines. Okay. Brothers and sisters, we need to mortify the Jonah principle. Okay, Remember Jonah? What was his attitude? I'm not going to Nineveh. <laughs> Those dogs can perish for all, of, for all I care. And in fact, Lord, knowing You, if I go, You'll probably have mercy on them. And so there's no way I'm going. That is the attitude of I deserve mercy more than they do. Christian, no you don't. You don't deserve mercy any more than they do. You think about it, Christian. The prejudices a holy God could have had against all sinners is infinitely greater than any prejudice any human being can hold. I mean, what if God treated the world the way we sometimes treat others? And yet He loved us. We need to realize, Christian, that Christ visiting a Samaritan woman here is not what should scandalize us. The fact that Christ came into the world to dwell among sinners at all, including ourselves, is what is incredible. And if Christ was willing to come down from heaven to dwell with us for our good, how much should we be willing to cross those lines to dwell with others for their good? That brings us to the second thing. Second thing. Christ's mission is for all nations of the world. Christ's mission is for all nations of the world. The second psalm, it is a psalm of the Father talking to His Son, and the Father says to His Son, ask of Me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And we know that the Father made good on His promise because we read in Revelation 7, of that great multitude that no man could number that is made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, granted, Christ made very clear that His first coming was to come first to the house of Israel. Right? His mission was not primarily to the Gentiles. But, to use an anal a biblical analogy that was spoken by the lips of a Gentile woman, there are points in Christ's ministry in which we see these crumbs of grace falling from the Master's table onto the Gentiles. And all of those are pre-indicators of the Gospel launching into every corner of the earth. So that after Christ ascends into heaven and sends His Spirit, or is about to send His Spirit, He says to His church in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea 
and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what I want to emphasize this morning, Christian, is that the nations hearing about Christ does not happen by accident or by indifference, but by the church intentionally reaching the nations. It was necessary for Christ to pass through Samaria to get this woman and these villagers who come to believe in Christ. He had work to complete that His Father sent Him to do. And likewise, His church has a mission to do the will of Him who sent us into the world. Go into all nations and make disciples. Yes, to be sure, we do that locally. And there's certainly much work to be done. Much good work. But we also ought to have a zeal like Paul had in Romans 15.20 where he says, I make it my aim to preach the Gospel of Christ where Christ has not been named. Member of Bethany, think of where Christ has not been named. Like the countless people groups that we pray for throughout the year every Thursday on our prayer bulletin that have zero or next to zero Christian witness. Those people groups are not just names on a piece of paper. They are a destination for the church to bring the Gospel. Because those names of people groups are made up of actual people with never dying souls who have sinned against the God of heaven and if we don't bring them the Gospel, they're going to perish. And I'll be honest, it's so easy to get caught up in local ministry here at home, which is good ministry, that the nations that are walking in darkness just get forgotten. Brothers and sisters, missionaries to foreign lands don't come from nowhere. They come from local churches like this one, where a people have a heart like Christ's heart that longs to see those who are walking in darkness see a great light. Where churches where some agree we're going to make the sacrifice and go while you stay at home and hold the rope for us. Like William Carey, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, said to Andrew Fuller as he was leaving to India, he said, I will go down this hole if you stay up here and you hold the rope for me. Missionaries come from churches where where both parties, those sending and those going, remember the words of the prophet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news. You think about it. When a missionary walks into a land that has never heard about Christ before, He or she walks in with something far better than food and water. He walks in with living water that by the grace of God will well up in their hearts to eternal life. And so, Christian, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into His vineyard. Pray that God would lay a burden upon our hearts for the nations and that He would raise up even from our congregation those who would go. Maybe some of you. That seems radical to many Christians to actually think, I'm, maybe I should be a missionary to the nations. That's not, that's not radical. 
The church has been doing it for 2,000 years. And almost always at great cost. During the great uh, um, Baptist revival of missions, during the time of William Carey and those guys, many Christians were packing their belongings in their own coffin because they knew it's very unlikely we're ever going to come back home. I want to read you just an excerpt from Adoniram Judson. was another incredible missionary. This is the letter that, and and it's fairly well known. Some of you might have read it, but... He wrote this to the man who would soon be his father-in-law asking for his daughter's hand. And Adoniram Judson wrote this. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to, to part with your... should have known it would get me at this point. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. And the, man that Adoniram, or the, the woman that Adoniram married did die for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her. And brothers and sisters, I read that simply to say, may we pray and encourage the cultivation of many more like Adoniram and Anne who would be willing to do the same thing. Number three, third doctrine and application. We learn what it means to not be quarrelsome in the defense of the faith. Okay? We learn what it means to not be quarrelsome in the defense of the faith. Paul tells Timothy, and through Timothy, he tells us, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And the Lord Jesus here models that for us. Okay? Not being quarrelsome means not only guarding our own hunger for escalating controversy, but also being able to diffuse the situation when others wish to quarrel. And to do that, Christian, requires a level head and a humble heart and a redemptive spirit. Okay? This woman, at least at the beginning of the conversation, it seems that she calms down towards the end, she is eager to stir up controversy and debate. She's, she's more about generating friction than she is about discussion. We see that, saw that in verse 9 this morning. We'll see it in verse, 20, uh, verse 12 and verse 20. And Jesus, here's the thing, doesn't take the bait. Okay? She is inflammatory with her questions and honestly disrespectful, but Jesus refuses to be inflamed because He's a man who has control over His passions. Because here's the thing, He's got His mind on the goal. 
of where he wants to get with this woman. And his goal is more important than even addressing these other issues and even defending his own name. I mean, he easily could have been side, got sidetracked saying, you know, how dare you just assume that I'm like every other, every other Jew with the same prejudices. But his goal is to lead her to believe in him, not get sidetracked on less important matters with her. And brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to some of you maybe more than others, you know, you're fun on Facebook and things like that. We need to learn this grace and this skill. And it is both a grace and a skill. Because first of all, it takes grace to be able to put off our own desire for self-justification and defending ourselves against abuses, right? And sometimes they are real abuses that people throw our way. But it's also a skill to recognize what is and what isn't a helpful rabbit trail to go down with this person, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, you're, you're trying to talk to someone about the gospel, and somehow, who knows how, they find out you're one of those crazy Calvinists, right? And so what do they do? They go on Google and they find a five-minute video of everything that's wrong with Calvinism, right? And so they send you a barrage of five reasons for why you're a heretic and you're crazy. And, uh, you know, they, they say to you, you believe we're all robots. Uh, you, you don't believe in evangelism and, you know, all these things. And you know they've deliberately misrepresented you. Right? And you know to them it's just a gotcha moment. And, and they think they've jabbed you good on that one. Right? What's your natural tendency when someone does something like that? Your natural tendency is to immediately think, I've got to go after that, right? And I need to set the record straight here. And so pretty soon, before you know it, it's no longer daytime, it's nighttime, and three hours have gone by on Facebook, and you've talked about what it means to have free will, and you've talked about primary and second, secondary causes and everything under the sun... Because you've got all wrapped up in their agenda. And at the end of the conversation, you realize, I haven't even confronted them about the simple things like their sin. I haven't talked to them about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and eternal life and the judgment to come. Let me ask you, was that Christian successful in that conversation? Depends on how you wanted to find success, right? Right? And I think there's a right way and a wrong way. Maybe you were successful in the sense of clearing up controversy. Probably you weren't even able to do that. <laughs> but even if you were, okay. And you know me. I'm not saying there's no place to, to do that. I mean, all God's truth is important and it's worthy of defense in the right context. But no one gets saved apart from the knowledge of Christ and the Gospel. Right? I mean, an unbeliever can understand what a Christian believes about free will and that doesn't get them to heaven. And we need to have the humility and the wisdom to not be immediately provoked by every little rabbit trail. And we need to learn to smile and let it be like Jesus did and keep pressing towards the goal of getting to Christ. Right? Christ, we'll see it as we go on in the chapter, brought this woman to a knowledge of her sin and an understanding of His person so that she believed in Him. He didn't need to solve the rift between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, 
His mission was to announce to her the excellency of His person and the gift of God that He had to bring and to offer to her. Other things can wait. Right? Other, other things, they can fall into place after someone believes in Christ. Don't worry, Lord willing, you'll have plenty of time to settle all those other things. But a discussion of other things that aren't connected to Christ doesn't address the sinner's greatest need. And so Christian, we need wisdom that comes from above. And we need to ask God for wise and discerning minds and for a judicious tongue and a redemptive heart that keeps the goal in front of us. Not to vindicate ourselves, but to make known the truth of Christ to others. That brings us to our fourth and final thing. Just briefly, and here I want to speak to you in particular if you're here and you're an unbeliever. And you're, you're presently not trusting Christ. Perhaps you're uncertain about Christ. Perhaps you are uh, deliberately in your mind set against Him. Hear me clearly. Hear Christ clearly. From this passage, if you ask of Christ, He will give it to you. Jesus says to this woman, if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink and the gift of God, you would have asked Him and He would have given it to you. Unbeliever, Isaiah preached the Gospel in Isaiah 55 saying, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Unbeliever, the gift of God in Christ to you is free. All He requires of you is not, not that you give Him anything. All He requires of you is that you thirst for this living water. That you desire it. That you recognize your own poverty of sin and your own uncleanness and recognize that if I come to Christ, I can receive from His fullness. That though I am empty and dirty, in Christ is a fullness of holiness and purity and righteousness that is mine and can be mine simply by faith. My friend, in Christ there is a medicine for every wound that sin has caused. In Adam, our first father, when he fell, all of us fell and were declared in the sight of God sinners. And not only Adam's sin is upon us, but we've committed our own sins. And by nature, rightfully so, God views you as judicially guilty of breaking His law. That's what we have in Adam. But in Christ, the last Adam and the better Adam, Christ comes and lives a perfectly righteous life and dies a death only He could die, bearing in His body our sins so that now by faith in Christ in the sight of God, I am declared by the Father righteous. My sins and my record and guilt have been transferred upon Christ and His perfect record of righteousness has been transferred to me. Not only that, in Adam, we became not only guilty, we became polluted. That's why we are the way that we are. That's why we're born unrighteous and doing unrighteous things. But believer, you who are ensnared to sin and are under the tyranny of sin as your slave master, in Christ the power of sin is broken. 
so that the Christian is made a new creation by the Spirit. No longer enslaved to doing only sin, but now freed by the Spirit of Christ to actually live a life pleasing to God. And more than all that, we have glory to come. Eternal life. A hope that cannot be snatched away from the hand of Christ. Unbeliever, come to Christ. Trust Christ. He has everything your soul needs. If you come to Him, you will not find that one thing is lacking in your spiritual need to be brought before the Father in perfect purity and holiness and righteousness. And so I plead with you, trust Christ by faith and close with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would instruct us from Your Word this morning. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite gift of Your Son, Your only begotten Son that You gave for our sakes. We pray, Father, that You would cause us to love Christ more. That we would look to Christ first as our substitute, as the One who in our place makes us acceptable in Your sight. But that, Father, we would also praise You in looking to Him also as our perfect example. The One who models for us godliness and wisdom incarnate. Always walking in the perfect application of Your Word. Father, help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray that we would be burdened in our hearts as we thought of Jesus' condescension to this Samaritan woman. Father, give us here at Bethany more of a heart for the nations. Father, may You work in some of our people's hearts to consider whether You would call them to foreign lands where Christ is not known. Father, forgive us for thinking that that is just something that somehow miraculously happens from other places. We pray that we would cultivate that kind of a love for the lost and those who are still walking in darkness. Father, we also pray for grace that we would model Christ in, in having dealings with any and everyone in this world. That there would be no prejudices that we have against particular people that keep us from befriending them and sharing Christ with them. Lord, give us grace to defy those prejudices that the world thinks we ought to have and help us to be those who magnify our Father in Heaven, when we are different from the world. Father, lastly, we pray for any who are here who are strangers to Your grace. Be gracious to them, we pray. Cause them to feel their need of Christ. Cause them to have a thirst for righteousness. Convict them of sin. And draw them to the cross of Christ, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy,
To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.